Welcome to Your Next Chapter, the podcast dedicated to you. The podcast dedicated to providing you with tips, tricks, and resources to live life you want. Your Next Chapter provides you with people who are living rad and inspirational lives to gain insights from to conquer the next chapter of your life. Whether you want to start a business, a new career, get in the best shape of your life, or create better routines and structure for yourself, Your Next Chapter provides you with guests to help you draw inspiration, insight, and wisdom from to lead the life you want. Welcome ladies and gentlemen. In front of me, I have my good friend Jordan Gray. I am really excited to do this podcast with him. I've known Jordan for six years now. He's a personal friend. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if it wasn't for him. He actually gifted me the mic that is sitting in between us right now as a starting point for where I'm at, and he's been instrumental in my growth and helping me launch my business, so I thank you for being here today. So good to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation. For those of you that don't know Jordan, Jordan is a sex and relationship coach. He's had some books on Amazon that became bestsellers, and he's uh, got a few courses on the website, and so he will give himself a little bit of intro as well right now. Hey, everybody. Yeah, I felt like you, you know that I've been writing full-time for three years, I've been a sex relationship coach for seven years, and I've known you for six years, so glad to be here. Cool, let's get into it then. Uh, first off, give the audience a little bit of background. I believe you went to film school for a little bit, but I don't think, I don't know if you ever finished it or you did, um, but kind of how did you end up here where you are today, because you obviously didn't take uh, the traditional school path, so talk a little bit about when you started and how you got to where you are today. Sure, yeah. Uh, I definitely, yeah, I did three years, I completed three years in film school, uh, film production, and I went to that straight out of high school just because I think I was looking to somewhat kill time, and, you know, that's what I wanted to do from 17 to 20, just because I didn't yet have the confidence to, you know, be basically a relationship therapist, but knowing that I wanted to skip that traditional schooling of going and becoming a, a sex therapist or you know, doing a four or eight year degree of becoming a accredited psychologist because I knew that my opinions on most of the matters were counterculture enough that I didn't want to have those handcuffs of what uh, that schooling would kind of point me in the direction of. So yeah, about seven years ago, I, you know, realizing that my bedroom was entirely filled with exclusively books on psychology, sexuality, relationships, attraction, etc., and zero books on film or photography or lighting, I was like, well, clearly my passions actually lie here. So I just did a Google search for Vancouver companies uh, that were the most similar to what I was looking to do. Uh, I found the company that I met you through and was, yeah, I basically forced my way into that company by just showing up and working for free for the first three or four months. and adding a ton of value to their company and with the mindset of whether they pay me or not, I love this work, they'll figure it out eventually that I'm adding so much to their company that they will start paying me, but that was fairly secondary to doing work that I was actually enjoying. So I was with them for about three and a half years, I broke off from then, started my own company, and that's what I've been building for the last three and a half years. Nice. It's uh, very reminiscent to my story where I've looked at my shelf and if you look at it, it's basically just a bunch of self-help books. And since I finished university, it's like all I've read is self-help and it's kind of like, huh, it's like I've been reading this and kind of drilling about it and just taking notes on all the stuff that I'm reading. It's like maybe I could turn this into something that's, that's where I'm at right now. And so 
it's kind of a clear indication when it's like I read zero books about finance and investing that's what I've done before and it's like now this is like the thing I'm fully focused on I think it's a good starting point for people when they kind of recognize what it is that they really want to do totally yeah that for me was a massive litmus test of realizing that I owned hundreds of books about psychology and sexuality and none about the field that I was trying to shoehorn myself into while sacrificing my integrity and there is that you know, increasingly dying off mindset of, oh, but I have to, even to do a non-traditional job, I have to take a traditional route. I have to get you know, accredited as a proper life coach or relationship coach or a sex therapist. You know, the microphone of society has never been more available. Like whatever you want to make a job of, it's all ridiculously possible. A little bit ago you said you did three, four months of the company we met through and you kind of volunteered your time. How important is that for people if they're kind of not 100% sure about what they want to do? Is interning or kind of giving up time for three to four months a good way to get started? Investing time, not giving up time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's, I'm not going to say it's imperative or necessary, but for me the most important part of that process wasn't I'm going to shove my way into this company so that I can get a paying job as quickly as possible. For me, the most important part was realizing that I was still beyond stoked to be doing that work for free. Like that for me was the actual lie detector test of, you know, at the 100 day mark of me working with this company for free, did I feel resentful and, oh, they should start paying me? No, I still felt like crazy overjoyed and lucky and fortunate to even be within those walls. And that for me was the big wake-up call of, you know, I was so happy working there that I literally had a difficult time getting to sleep every night I came home from work. And you know, these were night classes. I'd be teaching small groups of men and women from usually 7 to 10, 7 to 11 at night. And I'd be so fired up from the work that I wasn't getting paid for, which was a, a total non-issue, that that for me was you know, the real, the internal true north of like, this really matters to you. If you're like, if you feel this fortunate to be doing this work for a third of a year for free, maybe that means that this is a thing that you can either turn to paying work through this company or doing your own thing. So yeah, I think that that I think it's like a Alan Watts quote or concept. I'm sure has been touched on by thousands of philosophers, but you know, find work that you would do for free, and sure, eventually, you know, find a way to make that thing pay your bills, but. You know, the reason that I think all of the greats that really affected humanity in you know, the greatest deviations, like the Steve Jobs and Elon Musks, these are people that you know, became millionaires and billionaires because they were just playing. Like, they so loved their job. The money wasn't at all like, oh, I'll, I'll create PayPal so I can get hundreds of millions of dollars and then I'll be able to build a rocket ship. But Elon Musk is just, he's always been playing. Steve Jobs is always playing. And yeah, find work that you actually would do for free and you can't not do because it's the thing that just gives you more energy than anything else. Well, it's an element of flow, and so one of my past guests, Nick, said and talked about that where it's like the line between work and play is so blurred that you don't even, you can't separate the two is what it comes down to, right? It's just like they're ingrained, yeah. and so when you're working but you're playing, you can do it all the time and you don't feel like you're ever going to get burned out from it. I think that, yeah, agreed. I think that those things those two elements are the most blurred now than they've ever been. I think that it has so forever not been that way that people, you know, the main fear that keeps people from trying out, launching their own business, podcast, book, blog, whatever, um, 
you know, that, not that being a content provider is the only way to make a living, that's the only way to use your microphone, but, you know, it's been, work and play have been so separate for, you know, hundreds, thousands of years that it's such a new concept that people, like, still aren't, re most people still aren't ready to trust it. Like, am I actually allowed to, you know, enjoy my quote-unquote work? And, like, even that mindset of, like, oh, they call it work for a reason. Like, that's such bullshit. Like, who says that, like, you need to be suffering in the thing that you do for a third of your waking hours for most of your decades of living? Like, it's ridiculous. What do you think prevents most people from taking that leap and trying to create th their own business? I know you've been talking more and more about this and really believe people should kind of, you know, live a more intentional life and kind of focus on their business or creating a business. What holds people back from taking that leap initially, in your opinion? Only fear. Only fear, that's it. Yeah, and, you know, whether that's fear of, oh, is there actually a business model here? Is this actually something I can turn into a paying job? Can I actually pay my bills with this? Uh, you know, that, I think, is the thing that people tell themselves and others that they, like, that's their safety net of, like, oh, but, you know, I'm really blaming the fact that you can't really make a, you know, a monetized podcast talking about tire tread or whatever, you know, super niche market that they're trying to launch. I think that you know, the ultimate fear that those people are actually dealing with but are more reluctant to face up to is, you know, fear of not being good enough. It's like that lack of self-worth or belief in self of like, sure, like maybe that can be a business model, but like, who am I to do that thing? Which is, you know, that's Brene Brown's whole thing with like the shame and vulnerability research that she's done. That's like one of the, the frontline defense of, of shame or lack of self-esteem is like, who am I to, to do this? I'm not qualified yet. I'll just go do a decade of research and training and get all my credentials, aka build up the strength of my shield, and then I'll tiptoe into the world. But that's not what people want you. They don't want you to be polished and done and quote-unquote ready according to your fear mindset. You know, they want to see you in the journey. So what's the way to work through that? If somebody's listening to this right now and they're like afraid and they, you know, everything you just said, they resonate with, right? It's like, what kind of work do they have to do in order to be able to work through that fear? Is there some people that um, they're worthy to recommend or what do you think is the first steps to kind of get through that barrier? I think the first place that people's minds go to when they're hiding behind that fear shield is it's instantly like, well, like what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario, that you know they catastrophize and blow out of proportion is the immediate assumption is well I'll do this thing I'll put some effort into it I'll launch it out to the world it's a flop my friends and family judge me everyone will perceive me as fill in the blank a failure not good enough uh, an idiot for trying an idiot for trying waste of time waste of time try hard um, you know the whole litany of defenses that we slap against ourselves and. I think that it's fine to recognize, you know, okay, like that's a thought process and I can't stop that from happening right now and that's okay. But I think the next two steps from there are, okay, well, if I'm very well-researched internally what the worst case scenario could look like, which inevitably always looks like falling on our faces, uh, being broke, then homeless, then die alone. Like it just, it has to go to like the worst place possible. Um, I think the two things that you can kind of supplement or at least insert that wedge of doubt into that thought process is okay what is like a somewhat realistic best case scenario what could happen if I did this thing 
go through that, whether you journal, meditate, sit with it, talk it out with a close, non-shaming, trusted friend. And I think the other kind of catalyzing sense of pollution exercise or thing to sit with is, you know, how much is that going to sting? How much could that hurt by you not trying at all? Like, if, whether you die in a plane crash three years from now and it's the last thoughts on your mind or you're on your deathbed in 80 years and you know, technology only continues to advance and the microphone becomes more accessible and more easy to use, but you never allowed yourself the chance to get over that initial, you know, extended hump of fear and try the thing. For me, like, I can't imagine anything more painful than that. Like, than sitting on laying on my deathbed at 140 and being like, I never tried. There was so much untapped potential in me, and I could have easily affected millions of people for the better if I had had some ounce of fuck it, we'll see what happens. Well, and this is what I always tell people, it's like, even when I kind of started making some changes, and this started probably like at least a year and a half ago when I moved out from my place in Kits and kind of started moving in this direction, and I always said to people, like, you know, I can live with trying and knowing that it fails, but I can't live with not trying. It's like the fact that I never tried, that would eat away me a lot more. It's like I'd rather put it all out there and it's like, I'm 31 now, the way I look at it is that I have a three, four year timeline where I can really go for it. I don't have a lot of things holding me down. No kids, no mortgage, nothing really. It's like and I can put it all on the line and make the impact and change the world that I want and this is the time to go for it, right? And it's like, I can live with that and it's like in three, four years it doesn't work out, I can get practical after that. But I could never live with the fact, just kind of like never going for it, right? And I think that's a really important thing that just taking a shot gives you so much more confidence in yourself. Totally. And you know, just play devil's advocate, that uh, that age, age-based living belief is also a total invention because you know all the cliche examples of like Colonel Sanders and Ray Kroc and all these guys that built like you know multi-billion-dollar companies, and they started you know any piece of the idea after they were 50. And I think that, again, with the kind of people that I assume are being attracted to this podcast, uh, who might be more prone to building up blogs, podcasts, books, uh, personal brands, you know, I think that there's this idea that it's a young person's game, that you have to have like the energy and the hustle and you have to have no uh, dependence or mortgage or whatever. And sure, there might be some elements that are definitely easier or lower risk when there's you don't have four existing kids to feed but i think that you know people from 40 to 80 can start these things just as easily because you know all those formats all these new business models are increasingly as accessible and doable for quote-unquote older people as ipads are like everything is so push button and one of my favorite examples is i have so many people on a weekly basis between my Facebook messages and email list followers who message me and say like, oh, I'm really interested in making a book myself, like whether it's in the same industry or anything. Uh, they're like, how did you, like what's the process? How do you get Amazon to like publish you? And like they, they assume that it's at all similar to the traditional book publishing model of you submit your manuscript, Amazon looks at it and hums and haws and goes, mm, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if we'll put any resources behind launching this person. And that couldn't be less true. And I tell them basically in the first sentence, I'm like, you're making them money. They make it so easy for you to upload a product that brings them more revenue. And you know, that is not just in 
self-publishing with books, but that's it with you know WordPress, like setting up a blog. Like I'm miserably useless at tech stuff. I really am terrible at it. And if you know, in the first couple months of me setting up my website, I didn't have some savings to hire a tech guy to do like the very bare bones version of my website. You know, even being useless at tech, I could have figured it out by YouTubing, you know, how do you get a domain name to point to the website? How do you set up a basic WordPress blog? If I had any patience, you know, that would be an option to do. And you know, I'm just as much of a tech Luddite as my eighty year old grandparents. So, you know, it's accessible. Let's get into a little bit about when you actually did take the leap from, you know, moving from the company we met through here in Vancouver, they went down to San Francisco, didn't quite play out. They were a startup, like you built the company, did a lot of work there, but it didn't quite play out the way you wanted in the end. And you decided to go to Thailand and you're kind of just like, you know, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to build a business. Talk a little more about that experience because obviously you took a bit of a leap of faith uh, when you went over there. And what was the decision making process behind that? Because at that point, you know, I don't know how much you knew about what you want to create or build, but kind of paint a picture of where you were at that time and what led to the decision to go over there. Sure. So, yeah, a bit of background. I was the company that I was with for the first three and a half years. I'd never been happier in a job in my first year, and I'd never been more unhappy in the last year. Like, it just, the direction of the company was shifting, and, you know, what I was looking to create, content, you know, courses, writing about was shifting and it just felt increasingly unaligned and so it kind of built up this fever pitch of I was like I really don't like this not this work but this specific work setup anymore and so within a 48, 48 hour period I quit the job I ended my relationship I uh, sold my stuff I like donated a bunch of like 95% of like all the physical possessions I own in the world I just like got rid of everything I was like I could just put it in storage for some reason that still felt too tied down or still like somewhat, like it would have energetic ties. Like there was a weight that would hold you to Vancouver and you didn't want that at all. Exactly. And so yeah, I just, I basically just turned my entire life into a vacuum of like, fuck everything, I'm getting rid of it all. And In true Jordan fashion. Yeah, very uh, impulsive and black and white. And I kind of sat, you know, that process was very quick. But I kind of sat in that no man's land for at least a month or two where I was like, I was really anxious and like just, you know, not in a good place. And that's when I was doing that kind of self-reflection of, okay, like what do I actually want to do? Like what exactly did I not like about the ending that job? What is the thing that's trying to emerge for me? And I just, you know, I did everything that anyone would imagine somebody who's in that kind of career transition would do. I journaled a ton, I hired business coaches, uh, therapists, I meditated, just, I, you know, I, I listened to myself as much as I possibly could. And the common thread that kept emerging were, okay, well, I still like coaching, I still like working with people one-on-one -on, -one on these kinds of things, uh, on relationships and overall life intentionality. And at this point, I hadn't really been writing at all, even though it was the three and a half years of the company were all just live coaching, it was all one-to-one you know, -one and group coaching stuff. And I felt more like I had to honor the creative impulses in me. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I need a basic website so I can pour out my, like, have a creative outlet that I can just pour into. And when I made that decision to make that website, there is, and this is just part of how I work, and this concept can scare a lot of people, and it's not how everyone needs to do it by any means. 
but I really like to, uh, you know, metaphorically throw my hat over the wall. I like to commit to something and go, this is it now, this is the new path, and just very dive into it. And so I told all my friends and family that I was going to go backpacking through Southeast Asia for an unknown number of months. You know, when I left, I was assuming somewhere between 6 and 12 months. And I told myself that I wouldn't go back to Canada until I was self-supporting from this new business venture of, and I didn't know what the monetized model would look like at all. It was just, I'm just going to sprint in this direction now. We'll see what happens. Whatever I like writing about, whatever I resonate with, whatever my emerging tribe and audience resonates with, that will be the kind of Venn diagram of where my business will grow. And whenever, you know, if and when they want a product, I'll make it exactly then. And so, yeah, it took me just over two months um, to get to the point where I wrote, so I wrote, published, and marketed three books in my first 60 days of being in Thailand. And fairly quickly, that in itself, by my third month when I went to Bali, uh, I was self-supporting from that. Like, I wasn't traveling up in savings anymore. And granted, living in Southeast Asia is less expensive than Vancouver or New York or San Francisco, but it was proof of concept. It was that validation of... You know, for me, it was the first dollar. If I could make one book sale that nets me you know, any tiny sliver of revenue, that for me was enough to go, okay, if I can make one dollar, I can make six figures. If I can make six figures, I can make seven figures. Like it just it scales up. If there's any way to monetize your thing, which there always is, there's nothing more important than that first sale. But the original question was, but yeah. Hey, it was a great rant. Yeah. Uh, there's one thing I definitely want to pick in there. And so when you went from the company to building your own business so there's like a month or two where you kind of had a flux and you said you did what everybody does and that's like journal hire business coaches you know and do a lot of reflection which i don't argue that i don't know if a lot of people would do that i think a lot of people would kind of just like you know they might talk to friends they might journal a little bit but i feel people feel an impulse to go from one thing to the next like they feel such an anxiety i think you sat in that anxiety you know a lot longer than others would right and really spent in like what do i want to do here before making that next step because i think a lot of people just kind of like you know, they get laid off from one job and they're kind of like, well, how do I, and they're living paycheck to paycheck, so that demand of paying bills, and they just take the next thing, right, and it funnels itself. Yeah. So, I think you self-reflecting, the six years I've known you, you do a great job asking yourself questions, you do a great job asking your clients questions, and your self-reflection is one of your strongest strengths. How important do you think that is to you? Like, that is kind of my interpretation, but do you feel that's something that is critical to your success? Hmm. Um, I don't know if I've flowed, it's funny, it's like for being such a hyper-analytical and self-analyzing person, I don't know if I've ever slowed down to think about that, <laughs> that. so you know, the fact that I am prone to self-analysis, because yeah, I think it is one of those things that just like a lot of the most successful businesses and corporate cultures, like, you know, sometimes their magic sauce is the thing that goes the most unnoticed or unspoken. Um, so, yeah, it's funny because just like I think all of our greatest gifts, you know, any person in the world, it can often feel like simultaneously a blessing and a curse, but we individually, in ourselves, usually focus on the thing as more of a curse. So, you know, I know that with the way that my mind works, I find it extremely easy to think outside the box, but I'm still a fairly cautious person, so it takes me a while to convince myself into doing the thing that's outside of the box somewhat. So he'll know, okay, here's like a really untraditional path, here's the thing to do, but then yeah, I will sit with it for a month or two and really talk myself into it. Like internally, 
I think that's why like people coach yourself to do it. Like exactly. So motivate yourself to do it. Internally, there's a lot of baby steps, but externally, I think a lot of my friends, clients, family members see me as a much more impulsive and courageous person than I give myself credit for because I've been coaxing myself to that starting line, for, you know, for a while before I actually take action. So I'm doing it. You know, it's like a uh, a bow and arrow with so much tension on the line that when you let go, it's very ready to go and just dive into the next thing. So, so the yeah. lineup took a lot longer. Like you've been kind of putting an energy and effort into that. Exactly. Yeah. Like when I very first started my blog, and I, you know, the prime example, like people can hear that concept that I that I wrote, published, and marketed three ebooks in my first two months, and they were, you know, they made me more revenue than I was spending in traveling and like only living in hotels and eating exclusively in restaurants. Again, in Southeast Asia, but you know, I could generate that much revenue that quickly because I'd had all of those ideas simmering in my mind for at least six months coming out to that point. So when I said, "Okay, I'm I'm letting go of the arrow," it was very ready to fly. There was already a lot of torque behind it. And when you made that move, like you know, a little bit ago we talked about fear. Like, what were your emotions at that point when you decided to? You said you just like you know, build up the courage to go do it. But like, talk a little bit about your emotional state. What it looked like at that point. Sure. Uh, I'd say the simplest way to put it is I was terrified. Like I was, I was shooting myself every day. Uh, I actually had, I had a GoPro Hero 2, a little, you know, tiny little cube camera. And this is again almost four years ago, and I still have the video clip of me with my like massive backpack on in the airport before flying out to Thailand, which again, like, I really didn't, my best assumption was that I'd be gone for at least six months, six to 12 months, like I'd be gone for a while, I was leaving, I wouldn't, wouldn't be seeing any of my friends or family members uh, for close to a year, and I have this GoPro video clip on my desktop, always, of me sobbing in the airport. Like it was like, it was like a selfie video of me just like with pure, what the fuck am I getting myself into, fear while bawling in the airport. I think that was, you know, it can sound such a courageous thing to be like, oh, like you went, like you committed and said, I'm not coming back till I'm like making money and like making a mark in the world. But, you know, that was like that, that moment, that seed was still indicative of the first, you know, 60 days, 100 days, 400 days of building this thing from zero to something that, you know, I had to breathe through that fear and, you know, quiet my lizard brain amygdala as you know frequently like in the first couple weeks of being in Thailand uh, and I was traveling with a friend for the first couple months of being in Southeast Asia you know he can attest that I was crying at least every other day uh, but I was still doing the thing I was like well sure I'm gonna like cry and feel scared shitless and you know, I haven't made any sales and what am I doing and maybe my friends and family were right and this is all just like you can't make money after doing chats and it's like a pyramid scheme, it's impossible, it's a pipe dream. Uh, and yet I still was like, okay, well, you know, all I can control is what I'm doing, my output. And I just put out another blog post every, you know, three to seven days consistently and just like, well, whatever. I have to keep chipping away at this thing because deathbed Jordan's looking back at me and going, you have to try something. And I think it's really important for the audience to, you know, really take away from that because I think 
Yeah, it looked on the surface that, you know, in like the first three months you put out a few books on Amazon, it did really well. So it's like on the surface, it looked like you're doing well and you're putting out content. So like from my point of view, like I wasn't in time with you, I didn't know these things, but it's like, you know, it looked like you were, you know, everything was going well and kind of like progressing forward. But like on the inside, and this is what people neglect, it's like you're going to be torn apart, right? It, it really is hard and daunting and you're going to like feel a lot of different emotions. And so whenever you're creating and you're an artist, it's like it's not an easy expression, right? And so even on the surface, the people that you're like are your role models, your idolizing, it's like they might look like everything's together, but it's like you don't really know what's going on inside. So I really thank you for sharing that because I think it's like a testament and even kind of like what I feel is kind of like it's really hard to put out stuff sometimes because like you don't know if it's going to work or how it's going to work or like figuring out the next step. But I think like you just have to take that leap of faith and kind of have some courage and go for it, what it comes down to. Yeah, and especially in the first half a year of getting anything off the ground, you know, that to me that is the name of the game, is just constant experimentation. Uh, constant experimenting. You you don't know, and there is no way to get that certainty of, okay, well, you know, I'll start this business, but I just need to know, like, I need to know in advance that, like, which part's going to work, or, like, where I'm going to, how I'm going to monetize. It's like, you know, people try and do this kind of future-facing, you know, predicting the future thing. It's like, well, I'll do the thing with certainty when I know that there's certainty coming. It's like, when has that ever been true of anything? Like, that's the same thing as, well, okay, I'm really excited about dating this new person. We have, like, a ton in common. We have a, you know, common life vision. Everything seems really aligned. But, you know, I'll let myself like them somewhat when I know that they're already in love with me. Like, it doesn't work that way. Like, too bad. You, you have to breathe through the fear or you're kidding yourself. And Tony Robbins always talks about you. We need certainty and uncertainty, right? As human beings, we want both, right? You can't have one without the other. And so the reality of it is that, you know, as much as we want certainty and we want to know that this relationship's going to work out or this job's going to be the right job, it's like, you'll never have 100% of that. And we don't really want that because if we had full certainty, we'd be bored, right? So we kind of need that uncertainty to keep us, like, fueled and kind of, you know, open to the mysteries of life and what might be. Moving on to the next question, you've had a lot of uh, success with your blog since you went to Thailand. It's been two years. You've basically turned into oh, three, my apologies, uh, six-figure business now. What's allowed you to really have that success in you know a relatively short period of time? Not to go blog for a really long period of time before they get to that scale. So, what do you think's been really integral to your success? I think the absolute biggest thing that has made the biggest dent in the trajectory of my business is this idea that you know from day one I was deciding to be as stubborn as possible in spending the highest percentage of time working exclusively in my gifts. Like I had to from day one go, okay, what am I great at? And how do I do almost only that? I think that so many people, especially with you know this uh, shiny object syndrome that it's so easy to get distracted by all these different formats. So people start like, oh, uh, you have to be on Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook and you have to be blogging and you know, they spread themselves so thin because they're trying to build up a following on eight platforms themselves because it's early days, you don't have a team managing your social media account and I think that's a recipe for disaster to try and be everything to everyone and you know, if, if you really genuinely feel compelled to build a following on all those things because it's really easy and effortless and fun for you, then fine, you're not me, go for that. But I think that if most people are honest with themselves, you know, there is a medium, there is a format that calls to them a lot more. You know, extroverts tend to be better on podcasts and doing interviews and doing public speaking, whereas introverts tend to do better in writing and one-on-one coaching and things where they can kind of chew on the thoughts a bit more. And I think that 
was the biggest thing that kind of affected the trajectory of my uh, success is, you know, I said, I like writing, I like coaching. I'm going to do only that almost all the time and then outsource basically everything else with the revenue that I've generated from doing things that I'm already happy doing. What about guest blogging? Was that something that I kind of, what I've been reading and studying is that guest posting really helps grow your name and get yourself out there because you're obviously blogging for other people. Do you think that was a part, I know you've done a bit of that. Was that something that really was integral to your growth as well? It definitely added, yeah, there's, there's definitely a couple of growth curves where, uh, so yeah, the, the meta answer to that is yes, but even with that being said, I like to tie that back to, you know, I never, because I'm not like a networker or like, you know, charming social media outreach person. Schmoozer. Yeah, schmoozer. Like you are. It's so not, so not my thing. You know, like, like, yeah, most forms of like sales or self-promotion don't resonate with me. Like every really, you know, way smarter business person uh, than me, who a lot of them are my good friends, I'm really fortunate for that. You know, people are telling me constantly that like my website's under monetized and oh like there's so much latent potential here, you can do so much more with this. Or, like the way that you send out your emails, like, you know, I'll send out weekly write-ups my articles where I say, you know, here's the five new articles that I put out this week, all in one email which in terms of getting total clicks and drop clicks to your website is the worst idea. Like I should be, that's what it should be, you know, putting out five emails so each new article has its own dedicated email to get the most traffic possible. But I, yeah, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be getting good at email marketing when I like writing. And so even with getting my content syndicated on other much larger websites, you know, those major growth curves always came from me just doing my thing, from me writing on my site, on my website, and, you know, when I got... Them picking you up based exactly. on your writing, and they really, like, as long as you attracted it to your life, right, like, the Good Life Project, like, the Good Man Project, good man project when you work for them, it's like, yeah, you've just been blogging constantly and putting out, you know, two, three posts a week, or maybe and one, they two, coached me. They and saw they, one, two, they loved it, they're like, can we reprint this one? I said, yes, it did well on their site, you know, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And they asked me to start writing community content for them. But yeah, I've never put any hours towards, okay, well, how do I how do I pitch this website? How do I get a you know, regular column over here? I'm like, those things. It's more you just didn't attract it itself to you, basically, by the act of what you were doing. Yeah, the, I can't remember who it was. It was, it was Ryan Holiday, or he just quoted someone else who said this. But you know, I think the best marketing advice is be so good they can't ignore you. Like, right. If you're putting out something of value, it will spread. That's just how the machine works. Well, didn't Cal Noon write a book on that? He's the good they came there. I think that's probably. I think they have this book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways. If uh, there is, link to it in the show notes. I will. I was listening to the podcast the other day. He has another book, but I'm pretty sure his first one was Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. And so I'll do some research on that. Lately, you've been shifting more to intentionality and kind of living a very deliberate, purposeful life. Like, why is that? You know, why is that important to you? Why should people be picking their own paths as opposed to kind of just reacting to opportunities that come at them? Yeah, this is like a very, a very fresh shift. Like this has just been over the last month, really. That I think you know, I've written over three hundred articles and eight books on sex and relationship advice. I feel like there's there's so much stuff that I've said out there, and I'm happy with you know almost all of it because inevitably stuff you write three years ago is going to feel different compared to how you feel now. But, you know, there definitely came a point 
where I've been in transitioning phase where I'm like, okay, like I've really said a lot of what I want to say in the subject, and I'm starting again you know, just in the last you know 30 to 50 days, I'm just now starting to transition into becoming a more like relatively more multi-topic blog where I'm writing about things like you know self-love and self-care in my morning routines and uh, you know books that make you a better person like more general holistic stuff because you know and anyone can rationalize well like all these things still tie to self-love which are still about relationships fine you know in that context everything ever is about relationships um, but what prompted it is yeah I think just we got some sirens. <laughs> They're coming for us. Um, this is having to record. Yeah, it's having it. Recording live off the floor. Uh, what's the question? What prompted the shift? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's just honoring the creative impulses that are actually coming up for me. Like when I when I sat down to write, you know, articles that would be smart to write that are still within the realm of sex relationships. Sometimes they just felt too regurgitated, like it already kind of touched on these points in three to five other articles over the last three years. And so, you know, it's just a matter of my heart, my gut, my intuition saying, I think you want to write about this stuff now. And again, me having to quiet the lizard brain, quiet my like anxious mind that says, but that doesn't make sense, that doesn't, that doesn't fit. You, know, you can't wedge that into this cohesive brand, but uh, I think that is one of the reasons that I named my website, jordanrickconsulting.com, off you know right off the top, and not how to be the best partner possible.com because I knew that whatever I was going to write about was going to shift over time, and so I knew that you know it's one of those things of like if you if you're a radio DJ and you play a song that people don't like, they can change frequencies if they don't like it. Like if I start writing about uh, you know kinky sex or self love or what I put in my smoothie in a blog post and you know, 0.5% of my followers don't like it, then that's fine. They can stop following me forever. Or they can just read my old stuff and get value out of the half a million words I've already put out there that apply to them more. So, yeah, the short answer is just, I felt like it, so I'm doing it. It's time to grow. It's time to move forward. Yeah, time to expand. And yeah, Jordan's got great stuff on relationships, dating, sex advice. Uh, we're not going to get too deep into that today, but if you guys do want to hear or read a little bit more about that, uh, definitely check out the website because there's tons of good content there. But we're going to be kind of going more toward the direction where Jordan's going and what I kind of more passionate about is just picking your, your chapter and your path and kind of understanding where you want to go in life. One thing I've been learning from you a lot about is boundaries and boundary setting. I think it's a really important thing. You had a Facebook post um, recently just talking about the power of no, right, and honoring yourself. And I think this is one of the most important things where it's like when we say no, you know, we open up so many possibilities to ourselves, right? Why, and I think boundaries is something that's really important to you and kind of what you do with your coaching, why is that so powerful and important to you? Bound, so, I think being boundary, being assertive, uh, and by some extension, uh, the emotion of anger, those things can often get really weird, uh, you know, kind of dual reactions for people. And then we, we've kind of got this like overall negative connotation of people that are assertive or that have access to the emotion of anger are like bullies or untouch themselves and you know anger is an extremely healthy emotion like it is the boundary enforcer of life and I think that you know it's absolutely integral to not only building a business or you know becoming self-employed but being 
a happy, functioning, self-loving person, parent, uh, intimate partner, to be able to you know, carve out, basically honor whatever your core values are by saying no to these things, no to most things, which then gives you the space to say yes to things that actually matter to you. And you know, I think that early days in building your company, if, if you, the listener, is you know, building one right now or planning on building it, early days, I think that you know, it's much easier and probably more necessary to not say no as much to certain opportunities because opportunities just come to you less frequently when you don't have the audience or have the attention yet. So, you know, early days, I would say yes to every interview, every guest post that, you know, even if the, the overlap of audiences was like really a stretch to convince myself that there would be any value in doing it, it was still me kind of getting that foundation, getting the practice, getting the, the running time. Okay, well, I'll try this out and see what happens just to get, you know, get that foundation under me. But, you know, the larger, the more attention you get, the larger your audience builds, uh, the more important, you know, building those high walls, uh, you know, the more it matters. Because, yeah, the post that I made just yesterday, so I'm glad that my posts are getting out there on Facebook, um, getting saturated. There's, you know, on a weekly basis now, I actually downplayed it in that Facebook post to, like, not sound super braggy, but I think that, you know, given the context, it matters more to be even more honest, but on a daily basis, I'll get at least, you know, 15 to 30 requests to be on someone's podcast, to uh, do a video interview, to, you know, someone, like, locally, like, geographically in my city will message me and say, hey, I'd love to pick your brain, can I take you out for coffee, or can I take you out for breakfast, I'm, you know, I want to build an identical business model to you in the same or different industry, I'd love to hear how you did it. Um, <clears throat> and then even on like the smaller stuff of, uh, you know, not the small stuff, but more normal life stuff that isn't even people trying to potentially help you expand your business or you know, give you those kinds of opportunities, but, you know, friends that you don't really like or acquaintances that you don't really like messaging and saying, hey, let's hang out, hey, we're going we're to go out and get wasted tonight, let's, you know, do this. Or it's the it's holidays, it's you know Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and you know, there's this kind of like mental stat, there's this overarching belief that oh if it's family they have to do like everything, and if you're an introvert and you don't want to go to five parties, well it's the holidays, so too bad, yeah. do it all. And like you're allowed to say no to essentially anything you want. Like yes, I also live in the real world, and it's good to see your family because they're good people, but you know, there is that necessity of saying no to things that that make your stomach contract, that make you feel shitty, that take away your energy. And in doing so, then you have the time, space, opportunity to say yes to things that do matter. Like I said no to a dozen podcast interviews, but I'll gladly do this one because I like the person I'm doing it with and it's on a subject that I'm currently, you know, trying turning towards and in the present day more passionate about. So and I think for the audience, it's more about yeah, like your day-to-day life, like looking at no and just kind of looking at your social calendar because we feel so obligated to say yes. And one book that you recommended to me a long time ago was The Disease to Please, right, which was a big impact on me, and just learning how to say no. And it's like, it's one of those things where you have to learn how to prioritize what's important to you, and it's not about saying yes to everything in life, right? It's just really you have to kind of understand where you want to put your energy, because you only have so much time and so much energy to give, and if you just kind of squander it all, it's just not going to end up getting you what you want to get. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest and most important reframes around that is that, you know, if you think about all these 
friends, family members, acquaintances, and strangers asking for your time, and even if it's, you know, whether it's like, oh, like, come away and let's do this, this weekend thing in a cabin with people you don't like and we'll be getting drunk and doing stuff that doesn't really feel compelling to you, or if it's as, you know, micro and tiny as someone sending you a Facebook message that, you know, is exclusively value-taking and not value-providing, and they're like, hey, I've got a quick question that requires a 500-word response from you. Like, if people start treating their time like they treat their money, then I think that in itself is one of the most important distinctions to make internally. That, you know, if you think, if all these people that are asking for your time, like, just see all these messages, all these little, like, intrusions or these asks or requests, like, see them all as PayPal button links of, like, hey, man, like, just ask me for 40 bucks, and I'm not giving you anything. Like, give this, give me 40 bucks. Like, people are so, it's so easy for people uh, to be, Yes. boundaried or, or stingy with like, no, I'm not going to give my money. But they do that with their time. And I think especially when you're juggling multiple or spinning multiple plates, uh, when you're starting up a business or doing something that really matters to you, then like time is exponentially more important than your money because you can always make more money, you can always make more time. And you know, time, you could also replace that word with energy or attention. It's all the same thing. Like your attention, wherever it's going, whether it's answering, tw answering 20 questions a day for free for people that are adding no value to your life, to your brand, your growth. You know, you're allowed to say no to all the stuff that feels awful. I think one of the important things is like when you say yes to something, it means you're saying no to something else, right? And I really uh, learned this this year. I did this thing, uh, 21 Day in Early Days, the Chasing Sunrise Guys, where I woke up at 4.30 in the morning for 21 days in February. And realizing that if I stayed up to 11 or 12 the night before, it meant the odds of me getting up at 4.30, you know, were slimmer. And it's like, and I got up every time, but it's like, it became harder and harder. And so realizing that when you do things that like the night before, it's taking away from something in the morning. So if your morning routine is so integral and important to you, and that's thing you want to focus on and develop, it's like saying yes to going up for drinks at 10 o'clock at night is not going to be beneficial to your morning routine. So you have to ask yourself, what's more important? Is the morning routine more important? Or drinks, right? Because when you say yes to one, you're probably saying no to the other because it's just really hard to do both at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And you've done a good job of kind of, you know, I think for some people, they have friends in their lives that kind of aren't serving them anymore. And I've kind of, since knowing you have, um, and not cutting people up, but you kind of outgrow people and some people just aren't serving you anymore. What's a way to, if somebody has a relationship that's not really beneficial to them, they don't want to spend time with that person, how would you recommend maybe? You know, not ending that relationship, but approaching or having a conversation with them where they can maybe kind of, you know, disconnect from that person. It's a fairly, you know, it's a highly individualized response because it, you know, I'd have to calibrate it to the person, to their personality style, to how they feel about confrontation in general, and to the depth and style and dynamic of the relationship they're trying to cut ties from. Like, I think that most of the time, it's appropriate to just you know, dive into the thing that you want to be doing and distance without having to verbalize a, like, friendship breakup. Um, and, you know, ultimately when someone asks you to do something and you say, no, or I'm busy eight times in a row, they'll likely get and just stop asking you as frequently. Um, I think that, you know, that conversation has to happen with yourself internally first of, okay, do I actually want to, like, like, is this person really toxic and bad and you know abusive and damaging and like more than just draining my social energy then sure maybe a, a verbalized breakup is necessary we say you know what 
I feel like we're going in different directions. I'm doing this now, and I haven't felt good when I've been around, when I've been hanging out with you for the last you know ten times, and just it doesn't feel good anymore. And so, you know, I'm gonna have to intentionally put some space between us. So again, I think that that foul conversation needs to happen a minority of the time. And yet, you keep saying yes, yes, yes to hang on somebody, you're just giving them the wrong impression, right? What it comes down to, right? And so exactly. part of it is just through, you know, your boundaries. If, if you say no again and again, like you said, they'll kind of get the idea, right? But it's like if you kind of give them a yes here and there, then they're not going to sense that anything's wrong with what it comes down to. Exactly. And if you're also setting that boundary of I'm not doing anything, uh, not necessarily because they're a toxic person in your life, but because you just are putting more time and attention into something that really matters to you, you know, whoever is meant to stick around will stick around. And you know, I'm saying this more from a relatively young person's perspective with no kids. I'm not saying, you know, as you build your business, you're totally allowed to completely ignore your spouse and kids. Like there's certain uh, extending circumstances that that matter. But you know, I think some people worry that oh, if I really dive into building this business or working on my passion project or you know, starting my dream path, that what if? By allowing myself to do these 12-hour days, I'm really hacking away at this thing, and not just, you know, Facebooking and bullshitting around on the, on the internet, but like actually putting in good, you know, Pomodoro technique, like solid work chunks. Uh, I think there can be a fear for some people of, oh, but if I say no to so many social obligations, then everyone in my life will just stop asking and I'll become a social hermit. And I think that as long as what you're doing is fairly aligned with your core values of who you are as a person and they get that. I think that people that care about you and want your highest and best good will understand that, yeah, like, you know, they're not off learning how to sell math. They're doing a thing that's extremely an extension of them. So of course I would support them in needing more space for a while. That's how relationships work. Makes sense. Next question will be a little more philosophical. Uh, in your opinion, what's one of the biggest problems in society right now and what would need to uh, be done to correct it? I just want to get your take on this and kind of your uh, lens, because I feel like you have a very interesting mind. That's a broad question. More in terms of affecting relationships or Well, yeah, work? and I, I kind of would assume that you'd kind of go into it from the masculinity angle or from the relationship angle or maybe from a work angle and people not leading deliberate lives, but I'm kind of curious to know, like, you know, you look at the world and you're kind of like, if you could wave your magic wand and kind of, you know, fix one thing, like, where do you feel there'd be the maximum impact for humanity? It's kind of like, if you could give men or men and women or, you know, people in general this one skill set, like, yeah. what would you kind of like inject into humanity to really kind of like spearhead it going forward? Yeah, it's interesting. So I definitely, I had answers come up for all three of those things. And I was like, well, like, what's the most central? But I think that. A good person came to mind that kind of spearheads all of those things <clears throat> is that somewhat of a two-pointer. That I think that it's never been more important for people to allow themselves to be picky or to be choosy, um, you know, to live a life on purpose, to live a life of intentionality. I think that it's so easy to say those buzzwords and have them mean close to nothing, so, you know, that's kind of something you just be like printed on the side of a little lemon bag. But, you know, what that means to me is that the, the opportunity that we have with the, you know, just the sheer volume 
of intimate partners that we can attract, and by extension, you know, the depth of alignment that we can find in a partner because of things like now we live in these mega cities of millions of people, which has never happened before in human history. There's online dating, which can match you to people based on you know, core values and personality traits and little idiosyncrasies and like really niche interests. That's never been a thing before. Like you can really find an intimate partner, a career path, a lifestyle setup that is you know 95% very you. And the barrier to entry to achieving that with your relationships, with your career path, has never been lower. Like the fact that you can start up a business now with like, you know, maybe not actually zero dollars, but a microphone and computer. A microphone and computer. A smartphone, maybe like a year only required. Yeah, that you can start up a business for a thousand dollars with zero staff. And if you actually care about the thing that you're doing and you're somewhat resourceful and you put in genuine effort, like you can just make a business. That has never existed before at all. Like and the amount of resources now is incredible. Like you can find everything you need on the internet. Like Jordan's been interviewed so many times, it's like there's so many ways that you can, the information you need is out there, right? And there's other people that have built businesses like him. It's just like it's just so accessible that there's no excuse really is what it comes down to. Exactly. And I think one of the biggest kind of overarching themes today, see I just wrote about this a couple months ago. An article called The Shifting Role of Relationships in Modern Society or something close to that, where you know we've basically been moving up the Maslow's hierarchy of needs over the last hundred years, especially, where you know people got married or chose jobs very much from the kind of this isn't like a hierarchical thing like they weren't doing as well and they weren't as smart, it's just that's what that's how society was set up back then, where they were choosing things partners, group paths, based on their physiological needs with you know, food, water, shelter. You married someone who was an equal status level to you, who had a similar, similar size plot of land or you know, general resources, and you pooled that, and now your kids would do slightly better because of that. And then you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, there's more of, a, okay, like, yes, like that stuff matters, but the middle tier of the mental hierarchy needs more on the you know, self-esteem and emotional needs. And like, okay, yeah, but now, you know, when people were asked, uh, university age people were asked in like 1910 versus 1960, uh, what they were looking for in their ideal spouse that they were you know, yet to meet. Um, love basically didn't exist in the top 10 120 years ago, and now it's in the, you know, that in the 70s it was like the top five. And so that's the middle tier, whereas now, you know, now, last 10, 15, 20 years, but, you know, I think exponentially over the last couple of years, that top tier self-actualization has mattered more than ever. That people, because we have this you know, overwhelming database, this volume, this choice that we have available to us, this idea that you know, people don't just look for, like, yeah, they should be somewhat similar in their family background, I should love them and feel good things about them, but you know, people now more than ever are saying, I want them to you know, make me my best self not make me as in they have to do all the work for me, not that at all, but that they make me more of who I am. They magnify my presence, my being, my integrity in the world. And that is purely the language of the self-actualization. I feel like my best self when I'm with them. And when that's a mutual win-win and both parties are doing that, that's, that's the kind of choosiness that is so necessary to be patient, to sit for in a relationship, in inner career path, is to find that thing that is the most full and honest expression of ourselves.
Well, it's that traditional idea that, like, you know, an ideal relationship, the two of you combine are stronger than you as individuals. Well, right? Because one is with a lot and not one with a two. Exactly, right? Or even one and a half, right? And so the reality of it is that, you know, you want a person that's going to help you grow and develop to be your best self. And the same thing with your career, it's just like you want a career that's going to help you grow and develop so that way you're achieving your maximum potential as opposed to just kind of like, oh, this is easy, this is comfortable, and it's going to keep doing it for the sake of it. Right. It's easy, it's comfortable, but you know, I guess I'll just have to stifle 80% of who I am to keep this relationship going, to stay in this job that drains my soul every day. Nice. To wrap up, I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions, so we'll just kind of do some quick answers. Do you have a favorite book of all time? I know you read a lot, so this might be hard. Or you can list off a couple that really stand out. Yeah, I'd say some of my top ones of all time. I'd say The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, uh, The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon, The Mastery of Love by his name is not Paulo Coelho. Mastery of Love. Uh, oh, Miguel Ruiz Jr. Yeah, yeah, I read the Four Agreements. Four Agreements, yeah. Yeah, those are up there. Pretty easy. Favorite exercise to turn off your head? I know you live a pretty busy life and you're kind of uh, putting on content a lot. So you really, you know, white and black. Sometimes you're on, sometimes you're off. What do you do for your downtime? That's a great question. Uh, I feel like I only really started to intentionally cultivate knowing what my short list of like downtime activities were, like those transitioning things were just over a year ago. And I like to think of it as like a like an energetic runaway lane, like when a when a you know, an 18 wheeler is going down a highway and it's like, oh, the brakes aren't working. It's, it's that, you know, how do you take that and just point it in another direction so that it can cool off and relax? So for me, because my work is so in my head, it's so intellectual with writing and coaching, uh, for me, the, which is also, you know, energetically, it's very masculine and so feminine is getting into your body. So for me, uh, doing things that are physical in nature, whether that's uh, freestyle dancing to my favorite music or having a shower or bath, you know, as the water touches me, I drop back into my physical self. Um, exercise can be it, but it has to be kind of purposeless, play-based exercise, like bouncing on trampolines, doing things that make me laugh, not things that I can track and say, oh, this is my progress. My, my squat or my, you know, personal record, my deadlift is this now, that's still too in my head. Right. It's achievement-based and not relaxing. Too goal-oriented. Exactly. You're a blogger yourself. Do you have a favorite blog or a couple of bloggers that you follow, or do you not really dedicate a lot of time to that? I definitely don't dedicate much time to it. I'd say there's you know, a really small handful of people that I read at all. Um, Mark Manson is definitely one, because a lot of the major elements of his career trajectory, I've modeled a lot of mine after. Like, you know, he was a a dating and relationship coach for the first couple of years of his blog, but then he also kind of hit his ceiling and said, no, I want to write about everything now. And so just in terms of his overall setup, I like a lot of what he's put out there uh, as a content provider and role model. Ben Greenfield, uh, another guy who doesn't write about sex relationships at all, he's a, uh, he is, he's a modern day Renaissance fan, but like his main thing was he was very, health and exercise and nutrition focused, especially for people that run uh, marathons and Ironman competitions, but then he's also branched off and done his own thing. So yeah, I think that there's that common thread of my biggest role models over the last year, as I've been stepping this new version of myself, are people that are able and, you know, 
ready and willing to honor the breadth of what they want to write about. They aren't people that are very, you know, pigeonholed and oh, they only write about this. Like the people that have breadth of honoring their creative impulses and writing about whatever they want. Something just popped in my head is this. Would you say a lot of your writing comes from inspiration from the clients you work with, or does it come from reading? Like, where does kind of the origins for the ideas come from? I'd say first thing that comes to my mind is everywhere. Like that, you know, coming back to that, the fact that I'm very uh, prone to self-analyzing and sitting and being in my head. You know, I don't know if there's anything. It'd be it'd be harder for me to say there's something that I don't pull inspiration from. So yes, books that I read, uh, blogs that I look at, conversations that I have with my friends, family, partner. Um, yeah, everywhere. In terms of, I think it's probably a smallish percentage of my writing that comes from my interactions with clients. Maybe in the first year of writing and coaching, that happened a lot more. But as I've been trending more and more towards writing and you know creating books and courses and uh, you know, focusing more on my my free content. I think that you know I have intentionally put coaching on a bit of a back burner. Where I only you know, I really only work with five to seven clients per month. Uh, so you know my coaching hours have gone down as I've been kind of broadening the topic base. Cool. How can people find you if they want to hear more from you or reach out to you? What's the best way to do that? My main hub is jordangrayconsulting.com. You can find everything through that. My books, blog, courses. Uh, you can apply for coaching with me. It's all there. Any last words you want to leave for the audience or some advice to uh, wrap up the podcast with? I'm good. I like everything that came out. Awesome. Jordan, thank you for your time today. appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And for everyone, if you enjoyed this, uh, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review. It's uh, all great. And check out the uh, blog, www.philipsprinty.com.